now my Savior will be stripped, mocked, taunted, and teased. The soldiers now spat on him and beat him. Jesus, the Son of God. Hail the King of the Jews, they yelled. Hail indeed. It would lead my Savior away to crucify him. It's a place of the skull called Golgotha. Up the hill with the cross on his back, my Savior approached death. Ever resolute, ever sinless, ever Emmanuel, God with us. Undeserving of it all, yet taking it all for me. Drive nails into his wrist, yet he hadn't given up. He was faithful with every excruciating jab of the nail. He was pierced instead of me. Now the other wrist instead of me. And now my Savior now hanging on the cross instead of me. Christ took the ultimate punishment, death, separation from his Father, complete abandonment instead of me. The one who was full of sin, flawed and deceitful. Now here in the gospel, I'm reminded of my Savior now hanging on that cross. And I see now that my sin deserves death. And my sins carry an incredible price. That the only one who could pay it was the Savior of the world. Yes, Jesus was punished instead of me. So that now I may be set. Good morning, Summit Church, and happy Palm Sunday at all of our campuses here in the Triangle. Um, it is a big week for us, uh, not just because it's Passion Week, but because uh, this Friday we have our Good Friday services at the uh, Red Hat Amphitheater, and uh, so that's going to be incredible. We have a week of prayer that are leading up to our Easter services. Easter is one of those weekends, as I always tell you, that you get a free pass to invite people who typically don't come to church. Uh, that is the weekend that they will most likely receive that invitation. Um, it is possible, in fact, it is likely that our attendance will jump by a, anywhere from a third to a half um, next weekend. So make sure the people that you know need to be there are there with you. I've had some people ask me, uh, like, well, if you, you know, if you had to choose between Red Hat and, and Easter Sunday and you could only invite them to one, which one would you do? I say, first of all, invite them to both. But uh, yeah, if it was only one of them, bring them to Easter services because that's, that's the day that we um, really kind of uh, make the gospel as clear as we possibly can. So um, that's going on this week. Plus, as your campus pastors just mentioned, um, at the end of our services today, we are going to give you a chance at all of our campuses to um, be baptized if you have never done that after becoming a believer and a follower of Jesus. There are a number of people that are prepared this morning uh, to be, go ahead and take that step. They came prepared today, but there's a bunch of you that are going to make the decision to do that um, literally as I'm talking about it at the end of the message, and I just want to give you a mental heads up that you are going to make that decision. I'm telling you in advance you are going to make it uh, just so you can begin to get mentally prepared um, because we have everything that you'll need. And we want to tell you that uh, it is time for you to go public with your profession of faith. Baptism is, um, in the New Testament, it's always a public profession that acknowledges um, the inward commitment that you have made to Jesus Christ. Um, it is your first act of obedience. It is a profession of your faith. I know a number of you, um, and I want you to hear this with a great deal of respect, but a number of you were baptized when you were infants by your parents. And uh, we do have a lot of respect for that. And we thank God that your parents showed that kind of faith when you were born as a, 
uh, as, a, as a baby there. But we also know that that wasn't a profession of your faith. And so we want to encourage you today to ratify that decision that they made so many years ago, um, that they wanted you to grow up and be a follower of Jesus. We want you to ratify that by saying, by I am choosing to identify publicly with Jesus Christ um, as his follower. So that's going to happen at the end. We're going to have everything taken care of. We got changes of clothes and all that kind of stuff. But I just wanted to give you a mental heads up so that you know um, that it's coming. Matthew 27, if you got your Bible this weekend, I would invite you to take it out. Matthew 27. Here is a question um, for you as you turn in your Bible to Matthew 27. Has there ever been a significant event in your life that you and somebody else interpreted very, very differently? I remember hearing the story of four people who were sitting across from each other in the stall of a, a train as it was um, barreling along the tracks. It was a, a co- it was a basketball player, a college basketball player and his coach. And then across from them was a beautiful young college-age girl uh, sitting next to her grandmother. And so you could tell that the college basketball player and this college girl were kind of hitting it off and they were making, you know, exchanging flirtatious glances when all of a sudden the train goes through a tunnel, a short tunnel, and for 10 or 15 seconds it was total darkness on the train. And during that 10 or 15 seconds of total darkness, two distinct sounds were heard. One was the smack of a kiss and then the other was the slap of a face. Well, when they come through the tunnel and the lights are back on there, the girl thinks, the college-age girl thinks, you know, I sure am glad that he kissed me, but I wish my grandmother hadn't slapped him. The grandmother thinks, I can't believe that he had the audacity to kiss her, and I'm glad she slapped him. The coach, who was kind of rubbing his face, was thinking, I can certainly understand why he kissed her, but I think that girl smacked the wrong guy. And the basketball player was thinking, awesome, I got to kiss the girl and slap my coach at the same time. So uh, you probably have not had that exact same experience, but you probably had some experience that you and somebody else in your life interpreted in very different ways. Well, today we are going to talk about the event, the event in history that has been interpreted in more divergent ways than any other event in history. Very few people, of course, debate whether Jesus died. You might find a person or two out there that says Jesus never even existed, but they're by far on the the outside. Um, The divergence comes in why Jesus died. That's what causes the debate. Gandhi, for example, wrote in his autobiography in 1894, he said, I can accept Jesus as a martyr. And his death on the cross was certainly a good example of sacrificing yourself for others. But that there was anything else to his suffering that was mystical or mysterious, like dying as a substitute for sinners. This my heart can never and will never accept. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist in our culture, wrote the book God Delusion. He calls the Christian understanding of the death of Jesus, he calls it divine child abuse and says it's absolute foolishness. I've been in an audience where I heard the famous skeptic Bart Ehrman over at UNC Chapel Hill where he was asked the question of what it would take to get him to believe in Jesus. And he said very simply, he said, had Jesus fulfilled his promise to bring peace on earth? He made this promise he was going to bring peace on earth and then he died. Basically, what he's saying is that Jesus' death was essentially the failure of his mission. Now, I realize, of course, that not many people, or at least maybe many of you, or may not be that openly hostile to the gospel, but I've heard a number of people say things to me um, like, you know, okay, God, I understand the need for God. I understand why, you know, I need God in my life, but I just don't get the big deal that you Christians make about Jesus. Well, see, that's what we're going to press into today. We're going to do that by walking through the actual moments of the crucifixion 
I'm going to try to show you some clues that one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, clues that he put in the narrative to help you interpret why it happened. And then at the end, we're going to do what we have done on all the previous weeks of this series. I'm going to try to show you how the responses of the characters that Matthew puts around the cross are there to give you pictures of yourself. Like I've told you, you're the one that's being examined here, and you're the one that's on trial. And in these responses that people give to what is happening, you should see yourself and see potential ways that you can respond to the cross of Jesus Christ, okay? All right, that's what we're going to do. Chapter 27, we're going to begin right around verse 26. Let me pick up the end of that verse, because it says, after ordering Jesus to be flogged, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him, and they stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head and they placed a staff in his right hand representing a a scepter like a king would use to rule. And they knelt down before him and they mocked him, oh hell, king of the Jews. And then they spit on him and they took the staff out of his hand and they kept hitting him on the head. You know, when we talk about the crucifixion, we tend to breeze right through this moment and focus only on the actual crucifixion itself where they nailed him to the cross. But You have to understand that this part was equally cruel and and, and just as terrifying. First, when it says the whole company, it it meant 20 or 30 Roman soldiers that had circled him and begun to kick him and punch him and mock him like like a mob or like the cruelest bullies surrounding a a helpless child on a schoolyard or, or think a gang fight, delighting in his pain, beating him until he was barely conscious. You see, when they were finished, Jesus would have been barely able to stand up He would have been covered in spit, humiliated, and quivering in pain. Then, at some point in this process, they flogged him. The whole process of crucifixion had been designed to be able to put someone through the worst kinds of pain without, first of all, killing them, and second of all, without making them go unconscious. Because what good is you know, inflicting pain on somebody if they're not conscious to be able to, to um, suffer from it? And so the Persians had invented a process of crucifixion. It wasn't simply nailing somebody up to a cross. Um, they had invented this as a way of keeping people conscious and alive for a long period of time. The Romans had borrowed this from the Persians, and they had perfected it over nearly a century. I found an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that describes the process of flogging and crucifixion and explains why it worked like it did. I'm going to kind of reference it for several minutes here um, over the next uh, little bit. They used a short whip to give the flogging called a flagrum, or we sometimes refer to it as a cat of nine tails because it had nine braided leather thongs that had small iron balls and sharp splinters of sheep bone knotted into the, the thongs at various intervals. The victim was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied up high above his head to a post. The idea being that the flesh on his body would be pulled very tightly so that it would tear easily. Then two Roman soldiers, one on each side, would, with alternating strokes, deliver the beating. Their goal was to weaken the victim to a state just short of death or unconsciousness. This article says, and I quote, as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with the full force of the iron balls, they would cause deep contusions and the sheep bones would cut into the skin and the subcutaneous tissues of the victim. Eventually, the lacerations of the whip would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. After they had given him this flogging, they, they, after they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe that they had put on him, and they 
put his own clothes back on him and says they led him away to crucify him. The cross beam that they would have forced him to carry would have weighed about 200 pounds. It would have been placed across his back with a, a placard hung around his neck that stated his crime and his sentence. The cross beam itself would have been recycled, let's say that, um, uh, because it was used with previous crucifixion victims, which means that it would have re still reeked with the gore of previous victims, rough hewn and full of jagged edges and splinters. Jesus was then paraded through the streets before jeering crowds with two Roman soldiers in front of him and two behind him. Often, they say, people in the crowd would, would break through and come in and, and punch the victim or spit on them as they walked by. Verse 32, and as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. You see, evidently, Jesus was so weakened from the flogging that he eventually collapses and is unable to carry any more this, this cross beam. And so they pull a random man from the crowd, and they force this man to carry the cross. Now, here's a question you need to ask yourself as you're reading um, a narrative like this one. The question is, why would Matthew go to the trouble of including his name? Why would, why would Matthew name this man? Well, see, names in the Gospels function like first century footnotes. This was a guy who at the time of the writing would have still been alive. And what Matthew is doing is he is giving you an eyewitness who was there and basically saying, if you've got questions about this, just go ask that guy. The Gospel of Mark is going to take it a step farther and indicate that Simon was the son or the father, excuse me, of a man named Rufus. Now, why would he just give us details about his family? Well, evidently, Rufus was somebody that was commonly known, especially to the readers of the Gospel of Mark. We know, by the way, Mark was the guy that traveled with Peter, and Peter, of course, ended up in Rome, and when Paul writes his book to the Romans, he greets by name in Romans 16, 13, a guy named Rufus. And scholars tell us that this is most likely the same person, and the reason that Mark puts the name Rufus in the narrative, he's just like, you know, Rufus's dad. You got questions about how this went down? Just go ask Rufus's dad. In other words, this is not a made-up legend. This is an eyewitness account that he's putting a footnote in there saying, this guy's still alive. Go talk to him if you got questions about this. Verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which in Hebrew means place of the skull. The Latin word, by the way, for place of the skull is Calvaria, which we then used to say Calvary is the place where Jesus died. Verse 34, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. Wine mixed with gall was a very popular narcotic of the day, uh, functioning like a painkiller. The question you have to ask is, why did Jesus refuse the painkiller? Why was it that Jesus you know, would not take that? Well, it's not that he was against painkillers. Uh, it's not that this was you know, his first just say no to drugs campaign or uh, he wasn't a teetotaler and I can't touch wine. Um, the reason that he would not touch this is, um, do you remember a few weeks ago when we walked through the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember I, I showed you that where, you know, I asked you the question, why would God give Jesus a glimpse of what he was about to encounter on the cross before he experienced it? Why give him this advanced view? And you remember the answer I gave you? It was from Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, who said, he said, well, the, the, the reason that God gives Jesus an advanced view of the pain of crucifixion before he undergoes it is he wanted us to see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily so that the depth of his love for us would be put on display even more clearly. Because you understand the value of something to someone when you see what they're willing to give up in order to purchase it. And the whole cross was God's demonstration of his love for us. And if Jesus had dulled the pain, his love for us would not be as clearly on display as it is. 
God was demonstrating to us the depth of his love. And Jesus said, I won't take anything that is going to take away from the display that I'm going to go through to purchase you from your sin. So he refused the narcotic, narcotic. Verse 35, then they crucified him. One scholar explains, here's how the crucifixion worked. Remember, I told you, listen, you got to keep this in mind. It was designed to keep the victim alive for as long as possible and to keep them from unconsciousness. And it did this by putting you through cycles of dizziness, cramps, thirst, sleeplessness, hunger, traumatic fever, of course, the humiliation and shame, the piercing wounds that felt like they were on fire, ripped tendons and, and joints out of socket. The way that they kept you conscious was by keeping you cycling through these elements of pain. And when one of those particular elements was about to drive you to pass out, the way that crucifixion was set up, you would kind of switch to another type of pain that would keep you conscious and you would just go back and forth and that's how they kept you in a state of consciousness. Here's how it worked. Um, when you were on the cross, crucified there with your nails in your hands and your feet, you were hanging down, obviously, suspended by only your arms. Your feet were really no good to you because they had a nail through them, and so you couldn't put any weight on them. And as you hung there, very quickly, they say, your shoulders and your elbows would pop out of joint. The blood vessels from hanging down around your stomach would become swollen and gorged with surcharged blood. As you were hanging down, you couldn't breathe, and so you would start to suffocate. That, that feeling that you have when you, you know, are drowning, that kind of, I have no air. And so um, you would hoist yourself up by your arms in order to be able to take a breath, which immediately pulled on these nails that were through your hands um, and uh, your, your joints being out of socket. Um, it caused excruciating pain. Um, then they say that your muscles, because of the, the, the way you were hanging, would immediately begin to cramp. And so you could only manage to hoist yourself up for a, a second or two when you would have to drop and go back down. And from that hanging position there, you would, you would be able to take small breaths in but never exhale. So you would get quickly to that point where you feel like you couldn't breathe any longer. And so with the panic of suffocation, you would pull yourself up just a little bit, be able to take a breath in. And as soon as it came in, you'd have to let go and hang back down. So for six hours, Jesus alternated between the searing, burning pain of the nails in his hands and his feet and his joints being out of, bones being out of socket, going between that and this panic feeling of suffocation. And every time he pulls himself up or lets himself slide back down, his back, which is lacerated by the whips down to the muscle and bone, was further torn open by the splintered center beam of the cross. Eventually, they say the victim would give up and just die of suffocation. He would die in that feeling of drowning. I can't breathe. This is what Jesus was pointing to, by the way. This is what he was pointing to when he took that bread and that cup and held it up to his disciples and said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. This is the blood that is poured out as the forgiveness for your sins. This was the cup of God's wrath that Jesus had voluntarily taken so that you and I could be saved. He was wounded for our transgressions, for my small acts of rebellion, for the fact that I didn't want him to be in charge for those little white lies that I had told, for, 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 for the places where I had rebelled against God's law, for the fact that I didn't want God to be in charge, I wanted to be in charge, the fact that I didn't want him to get the glory, I wanted to steal the glory. He was wounded there like this for those things. He was bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement of my peace was put upon him so that by the stripes in his back that were put there by that flogrum, by those stripes, I would be healed. He was taking all this for me. He was taking it instead of me. Now, people hear all this, and they say, well, well, that's really moving, but 
what would his suffering, what would his suffering have to do with my sin? I once had a Muslim tell me when I was a missionary over in Southeast Asia, I once had a Muslim tell me, he said, you know, I just don't understand why God would need somebody to die in order to forgive my sin. He told me, he said, you know, if you sinned against me and I wanted to forgive you, I wouldn't, you know, make you kill your dog or your cat or somebody. Why would God require some kind of sacrifice to forgive? He said, he said in fact, the Muslim God is much more merciful than the Christian God because the Muslim God just forgives. The Christian God requires this kind of sacrifice. I told him I certainly understood what he was saying, but that's a very superficial understanding of forgiveness. You see, any choice, any real choice to forgive somebody of something significant means that you are agreeing to absorb the cost and the sting of the injustice of what they've done. If it's a significant wrong that's been done to you. For example, uh, if you borrowed my car or you stole my car and I didn't know it and you took it out and you wrecked it. And you come back to me and say, J.D., I don't have insurance and I, I don't have money to pay for this. What are my choices? Well, I could make you pay for it. I could take you to court. Um, I could, you know, we could set up something where you paid me back over a period of time. That's one choice. But if I looked at you and just got overwhelmed with compassion in the moment and said, you know what? I forgive you for I forgive you. You don't have to pay me back for wrecking and destroying my car. Not, that's not going to happen, by the way, so don't steal my car. But if, if I did that, if I did that, what am I agreeing to do? The car's just, I, I'm not going to say I forgive you and it's magically going to fix itself. What I mean is I'm absorbing the cost for your wrong. I'll bear the cost of the wrong, the injustice that you have done to my vehicle. Or, or switch the metaphor for a minute or switch the analogy. If you slander me, if you speak very cruelly and unfairly about me and ruin my reputation, right, and then I figure it out, what are my choices? How do I respond to you? Well, I could respond to you in kind, right? I could tell everybody what you've done, and I could slander you, and I could speak cruelly to you and speak angrily to you, and you know what? I'd feel better when I did it. Why would I feel better? Because I feel like justice is being served. The wrong that you did to me is coming back to you. Whenever you pay, repay somebody evil for evil, you feel good because it feels like justice. But if I looked at you and said, I forgive you, what am I agreeing to do? I'm agreeing that all the problems, all the pain that were caused by your slander of me, I'm going to absorb them in myself, and I'm not going to respond with pain back to you. I'm going to give you love and acceptance where you deserve hate and anger. You see what I'm saying? So what have I done? I've absorbed the pain of your sin. What God did when Jesus died on the cross is he absorbed the pain of our injustice and said, it will go no farther than here. I will not give you wrath and anger for what you have done. I will swallow, I will absorb the effects of your sin, and I will give you love and acceptance even though you deserve anger. You see, you've got to have a real understanding of forgiveness. If you don't understand what I just said, it's because you've never had to forgive somebody of an actual wrong done to you. I don't mean like little trite forgiveness. I mean real forgiveness. If you're going to forgive somebody, it's going to cost you dearly. And what you see at the cross is that God, in his love, absorbed the consequences of our sin and gave us love and acceptance, and he swallowed the wrath that belonged to us. Right before Jesus died, Matthew tells us that Jesus utters a couple things from the cross that are going to give us clues as to, as to what is happening. Verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? A quote from Psalm 22 indicating that Jesus has been abandoned by God. The Father has turned his face away. What we saw begin in the Garden of Gethsemane has now been brought to full uh, fruition. 
God has turned his face away from his son because that is the ultimate penalty for our sin. You want to know what hell actually is? Hell is the total abandonment by God. It is you and I walking away from God and isolating ourselves, and there on the cross, Jesus goes into total darkness, total abandonment, and all he can say is, my God, my God, my Father, why have you forsaken me? And then, verse 50, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. Now Luke tells us, the gospel of Luke tells us exactly what he said here when he did this. The word that he cried out is, in English, three words, it is finished. In Greek, the way that it's written, it's just one. The word he cried out was tetelestai. It was actually a very common word in Greek. In fact, archaeologists say they found that very word tetelestai that Jesus says from the cross. They found it scribbled across tax receipts when somebody had paid their tax bill. And essentially it meant it's paid. Jesus chooses a very common term as one of his last words from the cross when he says with a loud voice, it has been paid. You have no more debt that you owe. Every bit of it from the very beginning all the way to the end has been paid in full. Your debt is clear. I have paid it for you. And suddenly, verse 51, when Jesus says this, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from the top to the bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. That curtain was a four-inch thick curtain made up of 72 different cords um, that separated the people from the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. The name of it was the paroquet. It literally in Hebrew meant shut off because that's what it did to people. It shut them off from the presence of God, and they could not go behind that curtain into the presence of God. And if they did, they would immediately be put to death. Here suddenly as Jesus dies, as he lifts up his voice and he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, now it is paid. When he says that comes out of his mouth, that four inch thick curtain, the parakeet is split in two, showing that the torn body of Jesus through the torn body of Jesus, the presence of God is now open to all. He had been cursed for my sin. He had been abandoned for my sin. He'd been humiliated in my place, accused in my place, condemned in my place, defiled in my place, beaten, abandoned, and killed in my place. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. What else can I say but hallelujah, what a savior. By the way, what Jesus said from the cross as he died was the opposite of what every other religious leader has given as their final message. Buddha, for example, the Buddha, the Buddha's last words were, strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words were the exact opposite of that. It wasn't strive without ceasing. It was, I have done all the striving for you, and now it is finished. And you will be saved, not because you strive hard enough, but because I have finished it for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes. Believes means you understand that he is the payment for your sin, that it was done in your place, and you rest in it. And when you claim that as yours, all the victory of Christ, all the striving of Christ, all the things that Christ did for you, they become yours when you believe and you will not perish, but you will in that moment have eternal life, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done. Salvation is the free gift to all who simply put their trust in Jesus. The gospel, we say, is in four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus did not merely die for me. Jesus died instead of me. He took my place and was abandoned, beaten, killed, and condemned in my place. That's what happened. Now, like I mentioned, yeah, I'm excited about it too. You should put your hands together. 
Now, like I mentioned, not everybody, not everybody there saw this happen, saw this in the same way. And so what Matthew does is he puts at least four different characters there in this story to give you ways that people respond to the cross. And I want you to see yourselves represented in different ones of these. Number one, around the cross, we see the suffering criminals who rage against God. Verse 38, which we skipped in the reading, tells us about two criminals that were crucified there beside Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And it tells us that they were yelling insults at him and shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are really the son of God, then come down from the cross. Now, according to Luke, one of these criminals, as the crucifixion went on, would eventually have a change of heart. He would repent and he would end up rebuking the other criminal and he would say, what are you doing? Why are we cursing Jesus? This man is dying for us. And then he would say to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But what Matthew shows us is that here at the beginning, these criminals are both raging against Jesus and calling him a fraud and a phony because he won't save himself or them. I want you to understand that these criminals, listen, represent people who in pain curse God for not delivering them from that pain and say to God things like, if you really are who you say you are, then you would make this pain stop. Think about it. If you were dying like these men in agony, why would you expend what little energy you had? Why would you hoist yourself up through all that pain and use that breath just to hurl an insult at the man who is dying beside you? I'll tell you why. Because when you're in pain, nothing makes you angrier than the idea of a God who could relieve that pain, but doesn't. I want you to see in these two men Every single one of us who has raged against God in a moment of pain and said, God, if you are who you say you are, why don't you fix this issue? Maybe you're not really God after all. Maybe you don't even exist. Now, like I said, eventually one of those criminals came around and what he said was so important because it shows you what real repentance looks like. What he said, Luke tells us this. He looked at the other criminal and he said, the suffering that we're undergoing we deserve. This man does not deserve what is happening to him. He is dying for us. This is the confession of every person who finds repentance and faith. They basically come to a place where they acknowledge, I deserve my suffering, but Jesus didn't. Now, in saying that, please hear me, I do not mean that you conclude that every single moment of pain that you've been through was in direct response to something that you've done because that's not true. What I mean is that you confess that ultimately you and I live in a world that is filled with pain and suffering because we live in a world that is condemned because of our sin. And that you and I, because of our sin, we deserve the judgment of God and we deserve to go to hell. And so yes, even the pain and suffering that we live with in the world is part of that judgment and that is a judgment that ultimately we deserve. And then we acknowledge that the only one in history who actually deserved to feel no pain, Jesus, because he'd never sinned, voluntarily chose to enter it for us for no other reason than that he cared for us and wanted to save us. That's what repentance looks like. You see, when you go through pain, you got two choices. Choice number one is you can conclude that your pain means that Jesus really is not who he says he is and that he lacks the power to save you. That's essentially what Bart Ehrman, and I quoted earlier, that's what he has concluded. You say, Jesus, if you really are God, if you really are who you say you are, 
you would have saved yourself and you would save us right now. The second option you have is you look at the cross and you say, wow, he really does love me. He really does care. Look, he's dying for me. You see, Michael Green, the Christian philosopher from Cambridge over in Great Britain, says, whether you believe in him or not, the God of the gospel is the only God that doesn't simply offer platitudes or perspective about pain. The God of the gospel is the only God that doesn't merely say to us, here's an explanation for your pain. The God of the gospel is the only God that came down and shared in the forsakenness voluntarily that we feel in a universe gone wrong. He is the only God that did that. And see, what that means is that when I look at him and I believe in him, I may not understand. I may not understand everything that is happening in my pain. I may not know what God is doing. But I know what my pain, in light of the cross, when I see Jesus there, I know what my pain cannot mean. My pain cannot mean that God has either forsaken me or that God lacks power to deliver me. The cross shows me that my pain cannot mean that. It means that God of all things, has demonstrated his love to me, and I can trust him even when I don't understand and even when he's not delivering me from the cross that I'm bearing at that moment because he bore my ultimate cross so that he could save me eternally. So we see criminals that rage against God. Number two, we see creation itself that quakes under the weight of glory displayed. Verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness comes over the whole land. Verse 51 tells us this is accompanied by an earthquake. It is as if, in Matthew's telling, listen, it is as if creation itself has to respond to what it is seeing. I mean, think about the image of an earthquake. Something quakes when it encounters a force that it cannot withstand. I mean, think of it like if I were walking across a, a, a pond, um, an a, 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 a iced over pond, and, and the layer of ice was really thin, and it couldn't support the weight of my body. At some point, that ice would begin to quake and then it would crack and I would fall through. It is as if creation itself cannot withstand the weight of glory that is being displayed on its surface. And so it's like the sun itself in Matthew's telling has to turn away and the earth itself cannot withstand it. It has to respond. I point this out to show you what Matthew is saying basically is this. The cross demands some kind of response from you. You simply cannot look at these things and pass on by. You have to ask yourself, was this true? Is it true? Listen, if you're not a believer, this is not a historical curiosity. This is not, oh, this is what Christians believe. If this is true, it means that the God who created everything, the God who created you, the God who created all of it, came down and bore the penalty of your sin and your place so that he could save you forever. That is beyond a historical curiosity. If that's true, it changes everything. And you've got to decide if it's true or not. It deserves more than just a, a passing on by. You either quake in front of it or you ignore it as the worst lie of history. Believer, do you understand? It demands a response from you. Do you understand how insulting it is to God for us to sit in a place and hear about these things unmoved by them. Or maybe to sing about them while barely moving our lips, hands in our pockets, holding the coffee cup with expressionless faces. These things demand a response. Not even creation can withstand the weight of glory being displayed. And, and, and boy, Jesus said if, he, if they were silent, the rocks would have cried out. That's what the rocks are doing. They're crying out to this. 
Now Matthew's saying it demands something from you. You can't just look at it and move on by. What does it say, by the way, to our guests when they come in here, to people that don't know Jesus, and we kind of stand there with bored looks on our faces singing about the most glorious thing in the universe as if it was a trite triviality from the past. It demands some kind of response where we say, God, this is what you've done. We're the whole realm of nature. Mind, that would be a present far too small. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. I don't have a thousand tongues, so I'm just going to make this one sing like it's a thousand people, and I'm going to sing that loudly because that's the kind of glory that he displayed, and this is the kind of response that he deserves. I love this one right here, by the way. Next verse, verse 52, the tombs were also open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Honestly, I'm not totally sure what to do with that verse. I, I really am not. <laughs> I don't know what that was like, but what it tells me is that Jesus' death was so amazing that it was like some of the dead couldn't even contain themselves. Some of the dead believers just leapt out of the graves, and they had to run around leaping and praising and telling people. And what Matthew is doing is he's saying, you who have been raised from the dead by Jesus Christ, can you not hold yourself? Can you hold yourself back from leaping and praising God in worship? And don't you have to run around town just telling somebody? If that's what the dead happened, then we who are spiritually raised from the dead, that's how we ought to be. Number three, we see the outsiders. We see the outsiders in this story who recognize that he's doing this for them. In verse 46, when Jesus calls out, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, says that a lot of the people were standing around, a lot of the Jewish leaders looked at each other and said, he's calling for Elijah. Eli is short, you know, it's like the nickname for Elijah. The point is, they're totally clueless. They have no idea he's even quoting scripture. They have no idea he's talking about being abandoned by God. They think he's just calling out in the prophet's name. Watch this, verse 54. But when the centurion and those with him, the Roman soldier, when they saw the earthquake and they saw the things that had happened, they were terrified. And they said, truly, this man was the son of God. Many women, next verse, who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there watching from a distance. Where were the disciples? Well, they were a long way away. They, they weren't even there, at least at the beginning. Why is it? Why is it that the only people around the cross who get what is happening are those whom the Jews consider to be outsiders, second-rate, Gentile soldiers, no less, and women? The disciples don't get it. Chief priests, they're the one, the religious and moral leaders, they don't get it. Here you got the Roman soldiers, they spit out the first line of the Nicene Creed. And the women refused to leave. Why? Why them? I'll tell you why, listen to this. Because the gospel can only be seen from a posture of humility. And the weakened, those who recognize their need of Jesus the guilty, the ashamed, the despised, the discriminated against, they're more likely to perceive him and lean into his grace than the proud will be because they never feel any need at all. When my oldest daughter was about three years old, I always noticed that she'd not be walking outside, I'd be holding her hand, and she would always point out to me, Dad, a plane, a plane. And she knew I loved planes, so she'd always point them out. But I, I was like, how does she always see the planes and I never do? Does she like have like really good hearing and she can just hear it way up there and she looks forward. And then one day I was like, no, duh, I know why she sees it. 
because she's always looking up. At three years old, the whole world is up to her. And because she's always looking up, then she's able to see that thing which is high above both of us. But me, I'm always looking down, right? And because I'm always looking down, I never perceive what's there above us. C.S. Lewis, not using that analogy, but something similar, C.S. Lewis said, that's why the humble always see Jesus and the proud never do. Because the humble are in a place where they know that they need help, and so they're naturally in a place where they perceive the grace of God. But the proud, the rich, those who feel no need, they're always looking down, and so they miss the God whose grace they desperately need, which is why Jesus said, listen to this. This is a verse that really ought to make you put a chill through you. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that means rich in money. It means rich in power. It also means rich in religiousness. I am talking to a group of people, many of whom have been raised in church. You are among the most religious people on the planet. I'm also talking to a group of Americans. You are in the richest, most powerful nation on the planet. I am talking to people in that very nation that are among the richest of the people of that nation. It means that it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for you to go to heaven, which means that you ought to be very, very careful Just because you have assented mentally to the doctrines of Jesus does not mean that your soul has ever come to a place where you realized how desperately you needed the grace of God. Simply confessing Jesus as Lord is not what the Bible is talking about when it means confessing it with your heart. It means you are at a place where you recognize I have nothing and I need Jesus and I give him all of my life because what am I without him? He is my hope, my righteousness, my everything, right? So be warned, be warned, be careful. One more, number four, Simon of Cyrene, who helps Jesus carry the cross. Let me end our reflection time here by returning to Simon, the man forced to carry Jesus' cross. And we know this would have been a terrible event to have had to watch. But you know if you had to be there, right? Think about it, if you had to be there that day and you had to play one role, isn't this the role that you want to play? I mean, wouldn't it just to think that Jesus in his hour of weakness, his hour of need, that somehow you could do something that would lighten the load, somehow you could do something that would help him? That's where I'd want to be. Well, see, I think Matthew puts this picture in there because he wanted to give the early church a picture, Jesus' followers, of what they had a chance to do. to give them an invitation where they could willingly pick up Jesus' cross and help him continue to carry it. You see, it it is true in one sense that Jesus' work is finished. It is finished. There's nothing I can do, nothing I need to do that adds to the payment Jesus made for the world's salvation. But in another sense, it is not finished. Because it's like Martin Luther said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus had gone through this a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. Because the only way it brings benefit to them is if they hear about it, they can only believe on the one they've heard about and they can't hear unless we preach it to them. And we can't preach it to them unless we embrace the sacrifices that are necessary to get the gospel to them. And the early church was receiving an invitation of, oh, you wanted to be there and you wanted to pick up the cross? Well, now you got a chance because people around the world still haven't heard and it's going to cost you dearly to get the gospel to them. But if you want to pick up his cross, then here it is. You can pick it up and take Jesus to the people that he died for. And what that means is that you begin to carry the cross when you choose to leave a place that you're comfortable with, like here, and you go live overseas among a group of people that have never heard the name of Jesus so that they can hear about him from you. 
We got 100, 200 and some members of our church that have done that, by the way, that have left this place. Not because, by the way, they don't like America. And not because they got a travel itch. And not because they really want to live 7,000 miles away from their parents. They've gone to live overseas in places because people there need to hear about Jesus. And they're doing it for him because they know that his death, the work of his death is not complete until people hear and believe. And so, yes, it is a sacrifice. And yes, it is costly. But they would tell you it's worth it. It is worth it because how can they hear? How can his work be complete unless I go and I share the gospel with him? It happens here in, in, in the triangle when we have people who, who go into ministry areas that are not comfortable for them. And they go into parts of the community or work with a, a group of people that's not comfortable to them. And they reach out to people. You know, I, I, I'm not angry about this. It probably sounds like I'm angry. But I am so sick and tired of people telling me that they have quit ministries because it just didn't fulfill them. I'm like, do you feel like this was fulfilling to Jesus? Was this on his list of goals of what he wanted to accomplish in life? No, he did it because there was no other way that we could be saved. You want to know why you choose to go into a ministry and stay into a ministry? It's not because it makes you feel happy and makes you feel like, oh, I feel like this is what I'm created for. It's because without that, they can't hear and believe, and it's picking up a rough, hewn cross that tears your back as you carry it, but you gladly do it out of love for the one who gave his life for you. You embrace that cross when you embrace the awkwardness of talking to somebody about Jesus. People, when I, people are, you know, they, they, they talk to me, they, 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 oh, I never get to tell anybody about Jesus. How oh, all these things happen to you? Like people just, I'm walking down the street and people just fall at my knees and say, what must I do to be saved? That never happens to me. In fact, it only happened one time in the Bible, um, what must I do to be saved? It was after Paul had been beaten with stripes and then, you know, put in prison overnight and there was an earthquake, which to me doesn't sound awesome either. The point is people just don't ask the question without our personal investment. And embracing the cross means that you embrace the awkwardness of saying, hey, this is really important to me, and it's important to you. And I know it's going to create a weird tension here, but you've got to know this. See? That's what it means to embrace this cross. That's the invitation that's given to you. That is the invitation that is given to you to pick up this cross and carry it. Maybe it's when you extend forgiveness to somebody. That you feel like, I don't know how I'm going to forgive them, but you do it. You do it because you want them to be able to taste of the grace that you've received. My family and I saw the movie this week, um, I Can Only Imagine. Some of you may have seen it out in theaters or whatever, but it's uh, the story of the, behind the song. It's, I think, the most popular song in terms of sales in Christian history. I Can Only Imagine. And Bart Miller, there's a little section in the um, movie where um, it's a, like a, one of these live scenes for him at the National Prayer Breakfast. And he's standing in front of the president and members of Congress a few years ago. And he explains the story behind the song, and he said, I wrote this song after my dad died. He said, my dad was abusive to the point that he literally drove me out of the house. He was an alcoholic. He said, toward the last years of his life, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and totally transformed him. He said, but I couldn't forgive him. He, he damaged me too much. He said, but the last six or so months of his life, he said, I saw the power of Jesus turn an abusive man into the father that I'd always longed for. And then he said, I, I also experienced the power of Jesus through his death, give me the ability to forgive my dad the way that God had forgiven me. And he said, the reason I sing about these things, the reason that I stand in front of you right now is because I've seen the power of Jesus who can change an abusive father. I've seen the power of Jesus that can transform a bitter, bitter heart. I've seen him transform me, and I know that it's true. 
And I know that it can transform you as well. You see, Jesus unleashed a power through this that was more powerful than all the armies in the universe amassed together. The question is, have you picked up that cross and begun to carry it so that others can experience it? Which brings me back finally to where I started this message. Are you ready to be baptized? You say, well, that, I don't understand how that connects. Well, the first identification that you make with Christ's cross happens through baptism. That's what Paul said. Romans 6, 3, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. You, your first act of obedience as a disciple is to identify with the cross the way that Simon did. Where you stand up essentially in front of everybody and you say, I'm not ashamed. That cross was for me and I'll gladly pick it up. I will gladly pick it up. This is my identification with Jesus. Have you ever done that? If not, are you ready to do it? Because like I told you, I want to give you a chance to do that today if you never have. The time for excuses for you, are it's over. The time for obedience is at hand. It's like I told you, baptism is supposed to be your first act of obedience. Your profession that you're going all in with Jesus. What I realize is that at 11 different campuses of the Summit Church, we got people in every one of those campuses who have yet to do this. For varying reasons, but here's what I found. When you strip it back, the different reasons, and you get down to the core one, for most people, the core reason is, it's just inconvenient. I mean, seriously get wet in front of a bunch of people? Mess up my hair? Feels awkward? I wanna look at them, I wanna say, really? Do you not understand anything that I just said? You see what Jesus endured for you? He did it for you. He went through the humiliation and the beating and the condemnation for you. And then he says, this is how you identify with me. You're like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. That's inconvenient. How could you possibly say you understood the magnitude of the cross or feel any appreciation for it if you have not followed Jesus's first and clearest act of obedience? And those of you say, well, I got baptized as an infant. You were talking about me at the beginning. Listen, I want you to hear this with respect. It really is. I mean, this is, I realize it's not the most important thing in Christianity, but just hear me say this. As a baby, were you publicly identifying with the death of Jesus? Is that the choice you were making? Were you putting your own faith on display for other people? I mean, the New Testament, it's always a display of your own faith. Paul, I, I, I am, I'm being buried with him by baptism. I'm confessing my union with Christ by baptism. Were you doing that when you were a baby? I, I don't think you probably had much say in it. I think somebody was doing it to you. And listen, thank God for that. Thank God that your parents were doing this with a desire that one day you would grow up and follow Jesus. And now you have. And I'm just telling you, it's time to ratify that decision. That's why we, we always compare it to a wedding ring. Wedding ring is, I put this ring on 2000, you know, in the year 2000 because I was declaring to everybody, I've gone all in with Veronica. I want everybody to know that. I'm not ashamed of it. If that ring had been surgically implanted in my finger when I was an infant, it probably wouldn't mean that much to Veronica. In fact, a couple years ago, I got it tattooed to my finger, right? Now it really means something to it. It's permanent. It's a statement. Baptism is a statement to other people and to Jesus. I'm not ashamed. I'm ready to go all in with you. It's the first one. It's public identification. So I'm not trying to treat you disrespectfully. I'm just saying maybe you ought to consider ratifying what your parents did. Don't call them up and tell them, hey, I rejected my childhood tradition. You're going to call them up and say, I ratified it. What you wanted from me, I am publicly agreeing to. I am all in with Jesus, and you guys can rejoice together. 
Again, you say, well, I don't know if I brought the clothes. We don't have to have any clothes. We have the clothes for you. We got everything that you'll need. We have a change of clothes. People say, well, here's the other one I hear. People say, well, I'm not totally sure when I was saved. I think something that might hopefully won't rattle you. I have no idea when I was saved either. I know I am saved. I know I'm saved now because I know that I'm leaning my weight on Jesus Christ as my Savior. I know that I'm surrendered to Him. I've had seasons in my life where I would kind of wrestle with that, but I have no idea the day or the hour that I got saved. So that's okay. But if you know, if you know right now you're trusting in Jesus and you've never been baptized, this is a way to seal that. That's what I did. After I kind of went through this 16, 17 years, like, I don't know when I got saved. I was like, all right, it is time for me to profess that I don't know when it was, but I know it's, I am now. I would give you that invitation for you to, to do that. You say, well, I got questions. I'm not sure if I'm ready. Well, that's why this invitation right now is not an invitation for you to commit to be baptized. It's an invitation to begin a conversation. As soon as you step out into that aisle at well, your campus, one of our counselors is going to take you back. And they're just going to have a discussion with you and, and they're going to talk with you and they're going to see if you are ready and you're going to let you drive that conversation and if we need to wait for a while we will gladly do that it'll be your choice it's not a very it's not a pressure situation at all we just want to begin that conversation we can't begin it until you take that first step so don't say it. just step out and, and you do that here's what's going to happen i'm going to pray for us and i'm going to pray that god will give you the strength to do what you know you need to do okay and then we're gonna, we're gonna have a time where people at all of our campuses are gonna join the several from the previous services that have come forward to be baptized, like Mike, who said, I came to Jesus just a few weeks ago and now I'm declaring all in, or Jeremy, who said, I got saved 10, 15 years ago, but I've never made this step, and my family, we're, I can't wait to be able to tell everybody that I've gone all in, okay? That's what we're gonna do. Why don't you bow your heads at all of our campuses, if you will. I'm going to ask our counselors to go ahead and come at our various campuses. They're going to stand in the aisle. They're going to make it as easy as possible for you. But let me, let me lead you in a prayer here. First things first, if, you, if you're not sure if you've received Christ as Savior, then you could say to him something like this, Jesus, I'm not sure what, how much I understood before, but I know today, I know that your death on the cross was for me. I surrender to you as Lord right now. I surrender to you and I receive you as my Savior. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, or if you're somebody who prayed it a long time ago, but you've never been baptized, if you're in either of those categories, I want you right now to say, Jesus, give me the strength. Put the strength in my heart to take that first step of obedience. Give me the strength to go all the way. Please, Jesus, when J.D. extends the invitation, give me the strength to be able to step and get this taken care of. Father, I pray with your Holy Spirit you would fill, God, those whom you're calling with strength and give them the ability to obey. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's what's going to happen. Listen very closely. In just a second, in just a minute, I'm going to stand everybody up together at all of our campuses. And in one motion, if that's you, I want you to stand and step out there's a counselor there they'll meet you they'll lock eyes with you as soon as you step in and they'll take you in most campuses they'll take you backwards where they'll begin to have that conversation i know your heart's beating a little fast right now you're like is he talking to me if your heart's beating fast i'm definitely talking to you and i know nobody wants to come alone i, I understand that i understand you don't come. so right now if you're thinking you might come just reach over very subtly with your hand and tap the person next to you like this just do that that's just your indication of them i don't want to go alone you're going to come with me okay and they'll do that 
if you're, if you're, if you're seated beside somebody and you think that maybe that they want to go, in fact, let's do this. Everybody at every campus, everybody turn to your person on your right and your left and say out loud, if you want to go, I'll go. Everybody right now, turn to your neighbor and say, if you want to go, I'll go. If you want to go, I'll go. Okay. And if that's you, just kind of give them a little nod. Give them a little nod like, yep, I want to go. Okay. And you're going to do it together. Okay. One last warning. This is not a good time to go to the bathroom. I sh- it happens every single time. And I'm like, how oh, did you go to the bathroom? It's not a good time. You're going to get baptized involuntarily if that happens. Okay? So, so in just a minute, I'm going to stand you up. And you and the, listen, we have whole families do this. It's beautiful. Whole families that go together. On three, you stand up and in one motion, you stand and step and you go to the middle and there'll be a counselor that'll greet you and we'll take it from there, okay? Here we go. On three. One, two, three. You stand to your feet, some of us put our hands together and celebrate what we know and see that God is doing. Right now, you come. Just move out at your campus to the right and left. You come and they will take you. Here we go. Okay.